Welcome to this week's message from Pastor Jeff Spooniebarger at First Baptist Church, Gulf Breeze, located in the heart of Gulf Breeze, Florida. Will you open your Bibles to the Old Testament, to the Gospel of Ruth? You're confused, aren't you? Here's the thing. The Old Testament doesn't carry what we call the four Gospels, but in the book of Ruth, in the Old Testament, is the Gospel. So open to Ruth. It's in the Old Testament, uh, Joshua, Judges, it's right around there after Judges is Ruth. As you're turning there, Ruth chapter 1, we're going to go through the entire book of Ruth today. So about two or three hours and squeeze down into 30 minutes, okay? So I'm going to have to talk fast, you have to listen fast. But, but I've been reading this uh, passage for the last several weeks, maybe even months, and, and, and I've just been kind of, you ever go to the sand, to the beach, and, and you're in the sand, and, and you're digging out the sand, and, and the waves keep coming and pushing it back in, so you keep digging and digging and digging, and you don't feel like you're getting anywhere? That's kind of how I felt with this passage, because it seems as though there's so many truths in it, and yet it's kind of a, it's kind of a story just plunked into the middle of the Old Testament that unless you see some of the bigger picture things, you may not see why God may have done that. But there are multiple reasons that I want to look at today. But let me start by asking this. If you would have written your story, like if somebody would have given you a, a, a I was going to say typewriter, if somebody would have given you whatever utensil you want, your iPad, and they were to say, write out your story from birth to end without knowing any of the pre-story. So like your story wasn't written yet and you were going to write it, what would you write? The truth is most of us would write a very shiny, happy, successful life story, right? There would be no pain, there would be no suffering, there would be no loneliness, there would be no brokenness, there would be no abandonment, there would be no, um, um, no, no sorrow. None of those things would be a part of our story for most of us. Most of us, we would, we would write a story that was all tulips and sunshine, right? And everybody was smiling and everybody was skipping through the, through the flowers and we were, we were just all happy and it would, it would start happy and it would end perfectly in a sunset with a pot of gold at the end, right? I mean, that would be most of us for our story. But then you take your real story and you superimpose that over your make-believe story and how do those match? For most of us, it probably isn't anywhere close. Because most of us haven't put suffering and pain in our story. Most of us have left out the death. Most of us have truly left out the, the loneliness and the abandonment and all those other words that you can put in there. Most of us never planned on it, and yet here we are. It's there anyways. What we see in the book of Ruth is the story of a woman, and yet in her story is intertwined multiple other stories that are encapsulated in one mega story. So Ruth chapter 1. During that time, chapter 1 verse 1, during the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land. A man left Bethlehem in Judah with his wife and his two sons to stay in the territory of Moab for a little while. The man's name was Elimelech and his wife's name was Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion and they were 
Ephratites from Bethlehem and Judah. They entered the fields of Moab and settled there. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died, and she was left with her two sons. Her sons took Moabite women as their wives. One was named Orpah, the second was named Ruth. And after they lived in Moab about ten years, both Malon and Chilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two children and without her husband. Y'all are like, man, this is a awesome story. A woman and her husband and two sons leave the city or leave the town that they were, were, were raised in because there was a famine. So they had to go way across somewhere else to find food. And when they got there, the husband died, leaving the mom as a single mom of two boys. And then the two boys got married. And shortly after they got married, the two of them died as well. And now it's just the three women in one house here in this strange land. Yeah, that kind of sounds like my story, some of y'all are saying, right? It's just tragedy after tragedy after tragedy. What we see here are some details that I want you to see because it sets up the tone and the, the real situation of what's going on. So what we have is there was a famine in the land of Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread or place of bread. Now that's really cool because if you go to the New Testament, you find that Jesus said... He was, he was born where? He was born in Bethlehem. Jesus said of himself, I am the bread of life. So the bread of life was born in the house of bread. That's kind of cool, right? But here's what I think is really ironic. The house of bread is out of bread. Because there's a famine. So the house of bread, they have to go somewhere else to find it. So that's one thing that I kind of laughed at. But the name Elimelech. Naomi's husband, his name means my God is king. That's a strong name. That's pretty powerful, right? My God is king. And then Naomi's name is marvelous because her name means pleasant. So the parents of these two boys are my God is king and pleasant. Man, you put those two together, you got a perfect story, right? But then their children's names are a little bit telling. The children's names are sickly and weak. Okay, we got a little concern here, right? Number one, if you name your kid sickly or weak, you ought to get what you get, right? I mean, could you imagine? Hi, right, this is my son sickly. This is my other son weak. Great. Yeah, who named that one? Somebody, somebody was on epidural when they named that child, right? I mean, that was, that was way out there. So, so here you have these, these, this family who leaves because of a famine. They get to this strange land. It's Moab. Where's Moab? Now, Moab is across the uh, uh, Dead Sea in a place called Jordan. So you don't just go from, actually, be for your direction, here to here. You'd have to go here to here or here to here. So it's a journey. So they go all the way to this place in Moab. And when they get there, the husband dies, leaving this a single mom. And then her sons get old enough to where they take wives and they marry two beautiful Moabite women. One's name is Oprah. Okay, that's not true. Just get that out of you. Because I'm going to say Oprah at some point. It's Orpah, right? Orpah and then Ruth. So now we're back together as a family. But then after 10 years, the husbands died and all three women are like, great. You see, in these days, women didn't have the same kind of rights as they would have today. As a, as a husbandless, sonless 
woman. You had no land that you could call your own. You had no income. You were a beggar and you were basically homeless. You were low society. That was just the structure of the societal, uh, the, the days that, that, that they were. But here's what they did. They said, you know what? We got to do something. We're beggars. In a, I, Naomi said, I'm a beggar in a strange land. This is your land. So go ahead and go marry somebody else. You, you've done all you can do with my family. Go ahead and leave. And then I'll just, I'll just, I'll just go hole, find a hole and die somewhere. You say, well, how could you say that? Because when you listen to her story, when you listen to Naomi tell her story, she goes from pleasant to calling herself Mara. And that's found later on uh, in, in verse 11. She says, don't call me um, Naomi anymore. Actually, not verse 11. Uh, it's verse 20. She says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Mara means bitterness. So her life story was going pretty good until the famine came. And then she had one hit after another. And she went from being a happily married mother of two to a bitter old woman. That sounds harsh, doesn't it? But that was her life story at that point. That's what she says. She says, look, don't, don't laugh for me. Don't dance for me. Don't celebrate my birthday. I would rather just go die because I am Mara, the Lord. And then she blamed God. She said, the Lord did this to me. The Lord caused me to lose my husband. The Lord caused me to lose my children. The Lord has done this to me. Just call me bitter. Because that's the condition of my heart. What I want to tell you today is this. You would not have written your story the way it's written currently. I can guarantee you that. Now if you're like two years old. Yeah maybe you wrote your story this way. Because at two years old your story goes like this. I have someone who loves me and feeds me and takes care of me and changes me. My life is awesome, right? That's a two-year-old story. Once you hit three, things start to go downhill, right? Am I lying? Because once you turn three, you have to do this thing called share. And sharing is of the devil because it's mine and not yours. But my parents love me, so they're trying to teach me this thing called sharing and not being selfish and all these things. And so then you hit four. And that's why four-year-olds are so mad all the time. That's why, because they have to share. They're learning about this stuff. So they're always, that's, you know, you hear the terrible twos, the horrible threes, the atrocious fours. And then at five, they become sweet and gentle. Okay, not really. I don't know, maybe they do. I don't remember, though God has given us this defense mechanism as a parent that we forget those days. Once they, once they get out of the house, we're like, I totally forgot. <laughs> is, that, is that true? Parents, right? Thank God for that. So here's the story. Ruth tell, or excuse me, Naomi tells her two daughters-in-law. He says, look, she says, just go ahead and marry somebody else. You're young and beautiful. Right? You had that oil of Olay skin and everybody, you smell good at this point. And so you just go marry somebody else. You've done all you can do for me. I'm going to go crawl in a hole and die. And both of them say, no, no, no. We're going to stay with you and we're going to go with you back to your hometown in Bethlehem. And we're going to, we're going to love you and support you. We're committed to you. And so Naomi says again, no, 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 no. Don't do that. I, want, I beg of you, stay here and find somebody. Orpah decides to stay and Naomi decides, or excuse me, Ruth decides to go with her. Now, here's what we need to understand. Neither Naomi, uh, excuse me, Ruth 
or Orpah sinned. They both did right. One of them stayed, one of them left. They both did right because that was not a sin issue. That was a human issue that they could have done either thing. I would like to believe that both of them did what they felt they were supposed to do based on how God was leading them. And so Orpah kissed, and we know that there was a love there because the Bible says they wept bitterly. They had all kinds of crocodile tears, tears and they, they took selfies of each other so they would put it on their you know, mantle wherever when they would remember each other. And they, Orpah walked away in the distance, and Ruth said to Naomi, I will not leave you. And then this wonderful passage in verse 16 of chapter 1, don't plead with me to abandon you or return and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go, and wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me and do it severely if anything but death separates you and me. Here's what's so beautiful about this passage. We use that as wedding passages all the time. Do you realize you're not marrying your mother-in-law? Because <laughs> that's what this was said to Whither thou goest, I will go. That was a, a daughter-in-law to a mother-in-law, not a husband and a wife. We kind of ought to look at that, maybe. How many of y'all had that passage in your wedding? Let me see. Anybody? You won't admit it now, will you? <laughs> but you married your mother-in-law, basically. <laughs> well, you really did anyways, right? <laughs> I have a joke, right? There is a joke, right? Yes or no? Okay. I heard yes. <laughs> If you're young, you won't understand this, but happiness, true happiness, <laughs> is seeing your mother-in-law's face on a milk carton. <laughs> That's just the joke, okay? So if you're young, you're like, I don't get it. Well, we used to have pictures of, of unfound children, like lost children on milk cartons. Am I okay? We're good? Okay. Hmm. Let's go. Sonny, I love you. You're the best mother-in-law on the planet, and I really mean that. Uh, <laughs> I've told her that joke, and she thought it was funny, so we're good. Um, so, the two of them, the Bible says, verse 19, they traveled until they came to Bethlehem. When they entered Bethlehem, the whole town came out and started to celebrate, and that's where Naomi says, no, 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 I'm going to stop you right here. Don't celebrate. I've not come back rejoicing. I've come back in sorrow, and I've come back in bitterness. You know, when you don't plan or realize that your life is going to have brokenness and sorrow in it, you can really get jaded about life. You can really get flipped upside down. I mean, nobody says, you know what I want to do? What I want to do is I want to, I want to find that special someone. And I'm going to have this beautiful ceremony. And I'm going to have some kids and, and I want them to leave me. Or I want them to die. Or I want them to abuse me. Or I want them to whatever, right? Nobody says that. And yet, that's the story of life in our culture, right? And if we're not careful, we will look at that and we will say, God, where were you? Because our expectation is that we live in a sinful, or excuse me, that we live in a sinless planet, in, 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 a, in a sinless uh, in sinless relationships, but the reality is we live in sinful relationships and sin has consequences. 
The natural consequence of sin ultimately is death. For the wages of sin is what? Death. You say, well, is all bad stuff a result of sin? No. It's not. But somewhere down the line, all bad stuff is the result of sin. Death would not be a reality if sin didn't happen. Pain would not be a reality if sin didn't happen. Abandonment would not be a reality if sin didn't happen somewhere down the line. So you don't have to be the direct sinner, if you will, to receive the, the, the consequences or, or, or the, the, the effects of sin. But even in the midst of the most messed up, jangled, broken life, God still can redeem. And that's what he desires to do above all else. God is a great redeemer. He takes the nastiest, messed up lives. And he never looks at those and says, eh, no, I'm not going to be able to fix that. I got a buddy who has been working on his truck now for about 24 hours. He took the lower control arm unit uh, and the front end off. And, and he posted this exasperated picture. He said, I am done. Give me a match and some gasoline. This is gone. Because he had one ball joint that would not come out. If you've ever done that, that is a nightmare when you have a ball joint stuck inside of a lower control arm. He said, can anybody help me with this? And then he posted a few hours later. He said, I took it to a mechanic and he said, it's done. Throw it away. It can't be done. It was a hopeless situation. But then a few, minutes, a few hours later, he said, you know what? I found a guy who said he can fix it. I'm going to tell you what, the world looks at situations and say these are hopeless situations. You've gone too far. You've gone over the edge. There's no, re there's no redemption. There's no possibility. And God says, oh, you haven't seen what I can do with the most messed up lives. God can restore anything and anyone, even if it's disfigured beyond recognition, because the power of the gospel is that strong. Let me tell you why the gospel is so strong. Because if Jesus can bust the grave open and be raised to life, what could you possibly do that would be worse than that? Nothing. Now that doesn't mean that, that the results of brokenness don't follow you to a degree sometimes. Because sometimes even God restores all of that. But here's the truth. God takes and redeems that which is totally, completely broken. You have a woman here who went from pleasant to bitter. She went to, from, from a nice, happy, perfect little family to a family that was torn apart by death and by famine and by all of these other things. And yet she goes back home and God begins the rebuilding process. The rebuilding process always starts when you go back home. You got to go home. Now, for her, she went back to her hometown of Bethlehem. To us, it's going back to the Father. It's going back to the Father who knows us and made us. She goes back home. And the next scene in, in chapter 2 is that Ruth says to her mother-in-law, Will you let me go into the fields and gather grain behind someone whom I find, with whom I find favor? Now, we don't know what's going on. We don't know if she thinks she'll find favor. We don't know if, she, if she's prayed about it. All we know is she says, hey, I'm going to go and try to find favor with somebody. Here's where the plan of God is weaved in and out of our lives constantly. God has a plan. 
See, way back in the early part of the Old Testament, what we find are rules that God has given his people. Rules for how to take care of a field, how to harvest a field. And he instituted these things called gleanings. And he said to the people who own the fields, don't go through and get 100% of the, the grain. Make sure that you leave some things behind. And as you leave some things behind, allow those who are hungry and those who are in poverty, those who are, don't have the same uh, 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 substance as you, to come through your fields. Don't be greedy and stingy. Let them come through and let them gather the grain. And what God was saying with that was at least three different things. Number one, don't be greedy because what you have is because God gave it to you. And if God gives it to you, he gives it to you not to own but to manage. Don't ever forget that. You don't, you're not an owner of anything if you're a follower of Jesus. You're a steward. You're a manager. The second thing I think he wanted to show is his own heart for taking care of those who are in need. He was demonstrating from the heart of God the way that we should be as, as people of God. We're supposed to see the need and we're supposed to provide for it. It should be natural in our lives. And the third thing is he was providing for those who are in need. He was making a way so that people who desperately and genuinely were in need could have food and not die of starvation. So Ruth goes and she is picking up behind the harvesters in this field. And this guy named Boaz enters into the scene. Now Boaz is noticing Ruth in verse 8. Boaz says, or he first talks to the servant, says to the servants, hey, hey who is this woman that's, clean, that, that's picking up the, the stuff? And they tell her, oh, it's Ruth. And then he goes and he talks to Ruth in verse 8, and he says, listen, my daughter, don't go and gather grain in another field and don't leave this one, but stay here close to my female servants. See which field they're harvesting and follow them. Haven't I ordered the young men not to touch you? When you were thirsty, go and drink from the jars the young men have filled. He is giving her the rights of a family member. And yet she's a foreigner in his field. She says to him, why are you doing this? Why have I found favor with you? Here's his answer. Everything you have done for your mother-in-law since your husband's death has been fully reported to me. How you left your father and mother in your native land and how you came to the people you didn't previously know. In other words, her effort was rewarded by his kindness. I don't know how to say this. But I want to say this to where it's understood in its proper context. But we have a country full of people who expect to do nothing and get everything. Now, I'm not talking about, a na I'm not, this is not about politics, this is not about nationalism. This is about human beings being responsible for the, the needs that they have in their life to the best they can. This idea of doing nothing and saying, you owe me, is not a biblical concept. Now, there are people who can do nothing. That's a different story. But when you can do something and do nothing and yet you expect something, even God says, uh-uh, I'm not going to play it that way. I'm going to meet you at the point of your need, but you've got to do something because doing nothing ultimately is not, is not having the right heart. It's not the, it's, it's not the right... It's, it's all those things. So... Ruth put out effort. And, and here's the thing. It's not like she walked through, oh, poor me. 
Oh, somebody, she didn't go begging. She just did what she could do. And God blessed that. How did God bless it? He blessed it through another believer who saw it. So I have people, I say all the time, regularly come and say, hey, I need you to help me with this or with this or with this. My question has become now, okay, what are you doing about it? Well, I'm just, I'm just waiting on God. Okay, well, stop waiting and start doing something. You have no money? Okay, go get a job. Yeah, but the only thing paying is minimum wage. You're poor. You're broke. You've got nothing. Minimum wage is better than that, right? Y'all follow me here? It's this whole idea. And, and you can say, well, that's just about job. No, it's about faith too. I'm just waiting on God. Okay. Now, there are times God says to sit and wait. There are times where God says, don't pick up a plow. Don't do anything. Just sit and wait. But the majority of the time, God says, you start walking in obedience. And as you walk, I'll then open the doors that need to be opened. If you're sitting around waiting on God, unless God specifically said, wait, you need to start moving your feet. Amen. Amen? Turn to the person next to you and say, move your feet. Why? Because faith is in action. Faith is doing what you know to do already. You say, well, well I just, I'm just not sure what God wants me to do. Yes, you are. The Bible says, I'm not looking for sacrifices. I'm looking for mercy. Start showing mercy. I mean, there are, there's plenty in the scripture already that we don't have to know the will of God on it because we already know it. He's already said, this is how you live. Let me give you one really good one. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Because you didn't hear me the first time, so rejoice, right? Philippians 4, 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Let your gentleness, you, your starting point can be right there. But most, so many, I'm just waiting on God. I'm, not, I'm just not moving until I know exactly what God is doing. You go back in scripture the number of times that they were certain about God's will before they started moving in God's will. Right? What about Genesis chapter 12? God said to Abraham, Abraham, I want you to go down here 10 yards and then make a left. Once you get to that old oak tree, I want you to turn right. I want you to go, to 600, I want you to go 600 miles. And when you get there, I want you to, that's not what God said. What did God say? He said, I want you to start walking that way. And when you get there, I'll let you know. That's what the essence of faith is, right? It's not having all the things right before you. It's saying, all I need to know is that God is good. And I know it, but now I believe it because I've seen it. And I've seen it all throughout the evidence of Scripture. Naomi, excuse me, Ruth was just doing what she could do, and God said, Boaz, it's time for your story to interact with hers. I want you to move in, and I want you to bless her. And so she begins to be blessed wildly by Boaz. In fact, Boaz tells his people, hey, leave some extra. Leave extra, extra, so that she can know she's wildly blessed. Naomi Hears back from Ruth when Ruth comes home and Ruth says, listen, I found this guy named Boaz. And Ruth goes, or excuse me, Naomi goes, that's our relative. Matter of fact, he's in line as kinsman redeemer. Ah, the gospel. See, a kinsman redeemer was God's system that was previously set up by God 
so that if a woman was left without a son or a husband, she was not left unprotected and unprovided for. She was left with the ability to have all of her needs met through a husband that was part of the family line who would marry her. I joke with my sister-in-law all the time. I'm like, look, I sure hope Michael doesn't die because I'd be your kinsman redeemer and we don't want to go there. <laughs> it's, it's, just, <laughs> it's mutual. <laughs> now, just so you'll know, we don't do that anymore. We live in a different world. I'm just saying. But it's a funny joke. It really it, is anyways. But a kinsman redeemer was God's way of saying, you are important. It was God's way of saying, I am see you and I hear you and you are not alone. So what I want you to see in this story is it starts picture perfect, little bit going on and then everything drops out. The bottom is gone and I went from pleasant to bitter as Naomi and yet God brings all these other people in my life to start restoring that pleasantness. Ruth, Naomi, is starting to see some hope. She's starting to have some joy. The indication here is that she's starting to see that God is at work and God has not abandoned her completely. And the next thing we know, Naomi says to Ruth, Ruth, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go. And she gives her some instructions of a way that, they, that she could ask or, or, or proclaim or, or declare or, or, or enter into this agreement of a kinsman redeemer. So she goes and she does what she's asked to do. And Boaz recognizes this and says, you know what? I am not the first in line as kinsman redeemer. But here's what I'll do. I will go to the one who is in line. And then if he rejects it, I will redeem you. And so he goes to the city gate in verse 4. He calls all the elders to the city and he, and he lays out his case. And the person who's first in line to be kinsman redeemer. Again, that's a concept you have to go and study later. We can't do it in the 30 minutes we have. Uh, so he talks to the first in line. And the first in line first says, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. Sounds like a good plan. And then he's reminded, oh, but it's going to mean you're going to have to have trouble with your kids. <laughs> okay, I don't want that. He pushes it away. He rejects it. And Boaz says, okay. I will do it. So the next thing we have is Boaz marries Ruth. And here's the end of the story. Boaz took Ruth, verse 13 of chapter 4, and she became his wife. He slept with her and the Lord granted conception to her and she gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a family's redeemer today. May his name become well known in Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Uh, and and your indeed your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Naomi took the child, placed him on her lap, and became his nanny. She became grandma. Granny Naomi was born. So you remember, everything was good in life. Got a little rough. Angry at God because he killed my husband. He killed my sons. Now as a foreigner, I've got to go back to my home and I've got to face them with nothing. Don't call me uh, 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 pleasant. Call me bitter. And yet now she went from pleasant to bitter to Granny Naomi. And as we all know, there's nothing better in life than grandchildren. 
Do you see the process? Here's what we know. You don't get to be granny in her story without all the pain and suffering she went through. Her story in, oh, but that's not even the best part of the story. She's not just Granny Naomi. She is Granny Naomi to the grandfather of King David. Who became the part of the lineage to the Savior of the world. Jesus, the Son of God. I, I can't tell you how your story ends up. I, I can't tell you that. I can only tell you that your story is not all lost. And I can only tell you that God's faithfulness is true. And I can only tell you that you can choose to rejoice in the Lord always. Or you can choose to be a bitter old woman. Or a bitter old man. You can choose to look at all that has happened, or you can choose to look at all that God has done. Here to me is the most beautiful part of this story. In this story, we have God's declaration. God used this Moabite woman, this foreigner, this stranger to declare God's heart for the nations. And he put this this insignificant woman from Moab into the line of David. She became the mother who would eventually bear the son down the line of King David. The king that was after God's own heart who would eventually down the line give birth to the savior of the world. We want our story to be perfect, but that's not life. So there's this woman I mentioned last week named Corey Ten Boom. She was born into a good family. She had a brother. She had a sister named Betsy. She had a father and a mother who were believers in Jesus. They were faithful. The father had a business that was a watch business. He repaired watches. And Corey, at an early age, became really good at fixing watches. She became one of the first women, if not the first woman in the Netherlands, to be certified to fix watches. And Corey also had a business mind, and she was able to do some advertising and marketing and grow the business. Everything was good. It was so good that, that the, the family lived in a home that had an empty space next to them, and so they bought that home next to them. And God was blessing them and all was good. And then the German Nazis came through and started to persecute the Jews. And in the Netherlands, you know the story. There's a lot of history that went on there. As the Jews were persecuted, they, it was slow at first. And then it became more and more intense and more harsh. And they began to round them up. And so Corey... Oh, by the way, I didn't mention that Corey had a boyfriend who became a fiancé, but... He decided that she wasn't the one for him. And so she, he chose somebody else and left her hanging at the altar, essentially. And so she said, well, I'll bless the Lord anyways. I'm single, but I don't like it. But it's just, apparently it's what the Lord wants. And all through this thing, she was just taking one step at a time in faith, knowing that God was God and he was sovereign. They bought this house. And after they bought this house, as the persecution got greater... 
the family said, well, there's, these, are, these are desperate people. We can, we can give them a place to stay and, and try to help them. Then as it got more and more dangerous, they realized that they were going to have to hide the Jews. And since they were known in the Jewish community as a place of refuge, they had more and more and more and come stay. And, but in the sovereignty of God, when they bought this house next to them, it was offset. So their house was three stories. The other house was uh, uh, two stories or so. And, and they were like this. They weren't lined up perfectly. So it was this weird system that you had to walk through to get to the other house when they made it into one. And that turned out to be the providence of God because when the Jew, when the Nazi Germ, uh, Germans came to discover, hey, are you hiding Jews? They could hide in this house easily and not be found because it was so confusing. Providence of God. Have you seen that, that at work in your life? That you wondered why in the world this happened? Later on down the road, you look back and you say, oh, that's why that happened. Anybody have that? Right? God was, God was looking out. It's not a surprise. The Bible tells us that God knows your beginning and the end before it's even happened. Right? He knows the days he's planned for you. Right? And so this story continues that there's more and more persecution, and so they develop a system to where they have a buzzer in the house, and when the Germans come knocking, they would hit the buzzer, and the, the Jews in the house would go hide inside a wall in this hollow space. But there was a betrayer in their city. The betrayer came and gave this sad, sob story of, hey, my wife has been arrested, and if you don't help me, she's, she's going to be sent to a concentration camp. I need 600, it's not dollars, but whatever it is, will you help me? And, and they said, okay, we'll help you. Because they helped, that was the introduction to, that he needed to betray them. And a few minutes later, the door was knocked and the uh, uh, German uh, 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 troops came in and searched the house. They did not find the Jews, but they did get Corey, her sister, her brother, and her father. The mother had died. And I forgot to mention that. The mother died in this whole process. And after the mother died, they just continued serving the Lord just like they had before. The four of them were shipped off. The father died about 10 days later. The son died uh, not too long from that. And Betsy and Corey were in a Nazi, germ, a Nazi concentration camp, not for being Jewish, but for having love for the Jewish people and helping them because that's what God told them to do. In this camp, there were multiple places, multiple barracks. All of them were overfilled, but the one that they were placed in was a particularly overfilled. It was only supposed to hold 150 or 200 people, but instead they packed seven or 800 into that one dorm. The lice became so ravenous in that dorm that the soldiers would check every single dorm every single day except that one they would stand outside of it kind of look in and then walk on and they did that because they did not want to get in, uh, attacked by the infestation of lice here's what Corrie ten boone said she said i praise god every day for the fleas because of the fleas, it keeps the soldiers out and it allows me to read my bible to the 700 women inside of this place Freely and openly without fear of my Bible being confiscated. With every suffering, there is also a blessing. It's what you choose to see in it. Through that whole process, her sister Betsy got more and more sick. And he, she was getting to the point of death. She was on death's door. And she said to Corey, she said, Corey, God is going to tell this story through us all over the world. Now listen to me. These were two ordinary girls 
as they, they worked for a small family business in nowhere Netherlands, never in their wildest dreams would they expect that later on in their life they would have their story told even this day over a hundred years later. They didn't think of that. They didn't try to get that. All they did was they were faithful with where they are, with what they had, no matter what was going on in their life. That's the message to you today. Be faithful where you are. I'm going to say it like a mom would say, or dad would say it. Stop complaining and start rejoicing in what God is doing. And you'll see God do even more in the midst of it. Can I get an amen? amen. You keep telling God how bad it is. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I hate to be the non-emotional person, but here's the deal. Yeah. Life is tough. God is good. I'm not, I'm not making light of that. I'm just saying, if, if Corey Tin Boone can praise God in the midst of the fleas, you and I can praise God in the midst of the air conditioner that will only cool to 78 degrees. I mean, we're not, we're not comparing sufferings here, but I just want you to know God is good. You say, well, Jeff, you don't know my life. You don't know. Think I haven't experienced pain? One thing I've learned in my life is this. Never say you don't understand to anybody. Because you don't know if they don't understand. I guarantee you, people in this room here, if you were able to pull off all of the shell that's out there right now, there is such deep pain that you would be humbled at how much they've dealt with in their life. Victims, aggressors, all of it. And yet God is a redeeming God. God re restores us from the grave. But you got to do like a little baby. You know, a, a child's desire to be held is what we normally picture as our position of worship. It's the same thing. God, I need you. When I, when I listened to Corrie ten Boom, there's video of her speaking because she, she, spoke, she spoke worldwide until she was 92 or 93 years old. This old lady traveling the world, right? This nobody from Netherlands traveled the world telling the gospel story of forgiveness and redemption. But she doesn't do that without the suffering and circumstances of her life. You can't have one without the other. Because the story that's only a mountaintop is a flatland desert. That's it. Today, if you're here and you've never trusted Jesus Christ, I am pleading with you to trust him. I'm saying to you, your sin condemns you to death. But God so loved the world. He loved you that he gave his only begotten son. He suffered so that you could have life. Will you close your eyes and bow your head for just a moment? I'm going to ask you to lay down the pen to the story of your life. And I'm going to ask you to surrender every 
detail of it to God. And I know you, you can't really surrender every detail because you don't even know what details are there yet, right? But, but to the best you can, say, God, help me to give you control of this, of this story. And then just do what's next. Just do what's next. I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite you to respond. As we're having these next few moments, I'm going to ask that nobody leave. If there's an emergency, sure. But for the most part, if you, if you, if you don't have to leave, just stay here. Let's not interrupt what God is doing. And then we'll pray and we'll be dismissed. Father in heaven, I invite you into this place today. Lord, you're already here. But I want to say it again. Father, we, we do this not for us. We do this for you. God, we, we invite you into our stories of our lives. God, we thank you for the way your providence and your sovereignty has, has provided for us to this point. And God, I pray that with tears we would come before you with desperate hearts and say, God, if not you, there is no hope. God, I pray that you would help us. Help us. God, I pray that you would redeem us. And I pray that you would turn the ugly brokenness into a redeemed life story. Just as we saw with this baptism with Donnie. God, I pray. I pray this today in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand and will you respond to what God has spoken to?